So this is The A. I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is The A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! <laughs> we have a fantastic guest. We have Jeffrey Lowe. And I was just saying, I was looking at your um, your uh, your Facebook thing. I've got to pull that up right now. But you're a writer. Uh, you're a, uh, a director. I think you're working at TheaterWorks. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I am, I think, going on almost my third year as the uh, casting director at TheaterWorks. Nice. Yeah, you're doing some fantastic work. And like I said, I was looking at, um, there it is, Jeffrey. Um, Filipino-American playwright and director based in the Bay Area, a recipient of the 2014 Lehigh Weimers, Weimers Emerging Artist Award. And in 2012, you were the Emerging Artist Laureate at the Arts Council Silicon Valley in TBA Director's Titan Award. So uh, you've done some amazing things, man. Oh, thank you. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about you, but uh, I, as I begin uh, every podcast, Norman, how was your week? And thank you so much for uh, being on the uh, podcast on Wednesday. That was Wednesday was a great night. It was a full week. I, um, I started off with a, um, a protest that I ended up Supposed, I didn't know it was going to be a march. We get there, and then they're speaking, 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 and I had already made arrangements to meet somebody else, so I start walking. I look behind me, and they're like three blocks behind me, so I've got these motorcycle cops passing me, blocking off intersections as I'm walking back to get to my car. <laughs> um, so that was the week, the way the week started. And then yesterday... Um, I finished up my class with my, uh, I was doing a playwriting class with third graders. Mm. And so I got Dave Garrett to come in from Each One Reach One to be one of my actors, to be my only guest actor. And he and I and the teacher traded off roles reading the work that the kids had written. So I was happy to see that project finally come together. Third graders was a challenge. Yeah, especially <laughs> online, right? Yeah. And then, oh, but that was more, I saw what her challenge was more than for me. I'm trying to follow her lead, and I'm like, wow, these kids are, they're laying in bed. They've got their little avatars up. They're not, you know, it's, it was a challenge. I was happy to do it and happy to get a message from her right afterwards saying, this was great. Let's debrief and plan again for the fall. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure. No, it's fantastic. Then, uh, Go ahead. And we finished the evening with um, a jam session here. Uh, Marla got a bunch of uh, guys who play a lot of New Orleans stuff to come out. And so it was a bunch of horns and drums. And it was gorgeous. And there were four of us watching. <laughs> nice. Very, very nice. I'm glad to see people are, I mean, we're in so much chaos, whether it be COVID-19 or the protests. I'm glad that people are finding creative ways of getting their energies out in a positive way. And I'm glad that, you know, kids are being, you know, like the classes, it keeps their mind off of other things and um, art, you know, that's the, the work to be done with art. So that's fantastic. And Jeffrey, you had a birthday, you May 22nd, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. So happy uh, post birthday. And I think you had a, uh, uh, I guess, a Zoom birthday bash. Yeah, yeah, we had um, myself and a bunch of other um, artists, actually mostly Bay Area, but all over the country and and even the ones from other parts of the country, most of them had um, Bay Area roots or Bay Area ties. Um, we put together a night of um, storytelling, not really plays, not really films, we called them digital stories. We did uh, seven of them and I, I tried to sort of have, uh, instead of uh, just a birthday party on Zoom with some friends, 
I tried to create a community event where we can both just be together and also raise some money for some uh, theater organizations. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. I think uh, one of one of my best friends and uh, a great artist, Radhika Rao, was a part of that. Yeah. Uh, small world. Small world. I'm always amazed every time I meet someone new, they know someone that I know. So that's how it's a wonderful <laughs> tapestry that of Bay Area theater. So that's fantastic. Yeah. How how did the two of you know each other? We we've met at different. Um, different things like you know theater bay area conferences and through yeah. mutual friends i mean you and you and norman oh norman and i uh, we have not i don't know that we've officially met oh we've okay met, um, you, you've i've been i've sat when leslie martinson the esteemed leslie martinson oh, is the casting yes. director at theater works i i was um her assistant and i've i've watched you audition a few times ah yeah awesome that's fantastic we can jump into some current events. I mean, you know, there's really, I think, maybe two or three major current <laughs> events going on. Anything happened this week? Yeah, oh, right, exactly. Um, are you amazed? I'll ask the both of you. Are you amazed that the protests are still going on? I mean, I'm used to, by now, I'm used to the protests, you know, whether it be Ahmaud Arbery or, um, you know, um, George Floyd. But right. this has been going on for a while now. I mean, and it's worldwide. I mean, I'm a little amazed that it's gone on for such a long time. Or is it, or is it just you know the the last domino where it's it's um, how are how are you guys um, what what's your take on I guess the protests and how long it's been and how widespread it's been? You said, that last thing you said. It's I think it's I think we didn't deal with it when you know Ferguson happened. We didn't really deal with it. It bubbled up. There was some adjustment, some change. Definitely affected the election that back then. But um, then it just sort of quieted down and everything became all about Trump. And so when this popped up again, it felt like people had all that energy just ready. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think so. Jeffrey, do you have any comments or do you have any thoughts about what's been going on? Yeah, similarly to what, what Norman was saying, I, I forgot what it was. I was listening to an interview somewhere and, and someone made a point that I thought was was poignant where – you know, Ferguson made it so a lot of folks who were not already educated or aware of the the systemic problems that we were having made them listen and made them start to learn. And that that felt like the step that they were taking. And when the any changes that happened weren't enough or weren't present, this time it's the next step where now the education or the the first the first you know permeation in people's minds happened with Ferguson. And now it's the next step. Now, now we're going to go even further with it. And I think maybe that's why it's going longer. I think in some ways, um, you know, with, with COVID-19, the other problem that we have, a lot of people's energy and emotions are sort of all ready to be expelled somewhere as well. So I think that a lot of folks were ready to mobilize and, and fight the good fight. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think with COVID-19, with everyone staying inside their homes, I mean, this has sort of been like, I imagine like a, um, you take a, a Coke bottle, <clears throat> shake it up, all of a sudden, you know, um, the minute the cap just comes a little bit off, boom, it just goes. I think that's how a lot of people are feeling emotionally. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about, he was more focused on the rioters instead of the actual protests. And I feel he sort of uh, missed the point that, yes, it's bad to have rioters and it's bad to have stores, you know, burned down or looting or whatever. But this is really just a aftermath. It's a byproduct of systematic, <clears throat> excuse me, police violence. 
Um, but what's interesting is there's some DAs who are actually prosecuting the police. Like there were a couple of I saw and then I saw a police knock down a 75 year old man. Oh yeah, I think I we saw all that, saw that. Yeah, we saw that video and. You know, the uh, the DAs is not saying, hey, you know, we are in line with the police. They're saying, you know, we're going to start prosecuting the police. So maybe a change will come. Who knows? We'll see. I was also shocked that. Did you see with that story that the whole um, it's an emergency response team. They all quit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And Um, it's funny because most of the response I've seen online have been, yay. Get some new people in them, train them right. Exactly, mm. exactly. And that's one of the things that we talked about on that podcast, Black in the Bay, where Dwight Moore talked about what's happening in field training, officers training in the academy, where you get the bad behavior. So, uh, you know, for those who would like to visit, revisit that or take a look at that, you should. But also Trump, I mean, uh, the, the White House and the, the fence. Ah. My goodness, I mean, that's <laughs> – if I wrote a script of that, no one would believe it. Right. I mean, it is so dystopian. You People would have thought you were being mean to him by making a joke about him putting up a wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just – Jeffrey, let me ask you this question just about Trump in general. I mean, are you optimistic about 2020? Um, I don't know your affiliations at all, but how do you – how are you living in the age of Trump? Uh, it's, it's stressful. (laughs) I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't, I don't like being affiliated with a country where I'm embarrassed by my leadership on a constant basis. Um, in terms of, of, am I optimistic about 2020? You know, yes and no. I think that 2016, we were all not, not all of us, but a lot of us didn't think this was possible. I was one of them. I thought that there was no way that, you know, like, you know, when it was when we were still in the primaries in 2016, and it was between Hillary and Bernie. I knew that Bernie seemed much more left than Hillary and a lot more like he had he had ideas that felt more radical than Hillary. And a part of me thought, you know, if it's going to be Trump, it might as well be Bernie because because there's no way Trump's winning. And so I was so I myself right. was fooled by this. And so. I, I'm not. I'm trying not to be optimistic because I was fooled in 2016. But at the same time, I think that so many of us, hopefully, realized that we were fooled. So a lot of folks that didn't vote because they had whatever, um, whatever qualms they had with both candidates, or they thought that their vote wasn't going to matter. I hope that all those folks who thought that this was impossible will now be activated to actually go out and vote, so we could have a more uh, a more full election where folks are, um, it's representative, where the, the people elected are more representative of who we actually want to be in offices because this is a problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think a lot of people are saying that. And I think a lot of people are a lot more awake uh, than beforehand. I mean, one of the, if, if I could say a positive thing about the Trump presidency, it's awakened up a lot of people. I mean, there have been so much change that has happened as a response to the counterbalance to Trump, yeah, like the right. emergence of Stacey Abrams and AOC and um, so many activists getting involved. Um, and I've seen a bunch of polls saying that Biden is in the lead. Of course, there were polls in 2012, I'm sorry, 2016, that said right. Hillary was in the lead. But I think, uh, you know, the, the papers are saying that it's very unlikely that what will happen in 2016 will happen again in 2020. And Trump is just shooting himself in the foot left and right. So um, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Uh, How do you feel about Biden? I mean, there are a lot of folks who are, uh, you know, they, they feel that Biden is uh, just the same old, same old, very established, but. um, 
I any any thoughts very, both of you? I think we weren't very established at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope we do. I hear I you. Think, I think Biden could put some good people around him. I think that's that's the hope too, right? Where Trump is putting his family members, his his lawyer, his personal whatever all around him. The hope is that Biden can put some some smart people around him because of the fact that we know that it's not just one it's not just one person. It's a collaboration. You know, we're we're going to talk about theater in a bit. That's and a, it doesn't right. it, it's not just a good director, not just a good script, not just one good actor that's going to make a good play. Mm-hmm. So hopefully hopefully we can make that work. Yeah, you you're absolutely right. It it takes a, a coalition uh so and also, you know, this is a good time to transition to uh Jeffrey Lowe. Um you so are you give us an origin story. Were you born and raised here in the Bay Area? Yeah, uh born and raised in uh San Jose, California. Yay! I I uh lived there up until like last year where I moved, you know, 10 minutes north to Campbell. So I'm pretty much in San Jose still. <laughs> um, I went to study both journalism and theater at, uh, in Southern California at UC Irvine in Orange County, and then very oh. quickly moved back to the Bay Area. And what's what's funny is um, my girlfriend at the time who I went to college with, she came up to, she came up to the Bay to do an internship at TheaterWorks. And she was a, uh, an assistant stage manager for one of their shows. And she heard that uh, they had lost uh, a soundboard operator, uh, a crew member, and they needed someone. And I was still in Southern California. I was ta- had to take one more class to finish school. And I, I had expected to just sort of um, mess around for the summer and just enjoy the fact that I had just finished college. But this opportunity came. And um, at the same time, my, uh, my grandfather on my dad's side passed away, um, who lived in the Philippines. And I, I had called my dad. I knew I had this opportunity to come up and, and work on this this piece um, as a crew member, and I remember calling my dad, who who doesn't he doesn't say much, and I just I just said, hey, um, do you do you want me to come home? And my dad, who usually would be like, no, just do whatever you want, like do whatever. But I, the way I really knew that he wasn't doing well with the passing of my grandfather, who lived in the Philippines, um, he was like, yeah, you should come home. So immediately, oh. I, I you know I called I called TheaterWorks. I said, yeah, I'll be there, and I drove up. You know, I, I quit my job. I, I packed up and I moved back home, mm. and um, I worked. And the very my very first day moving back in the Bay Area, I was a sound mixer at TheaterWorks. And then, um, sort of the origin story of how I bumped into the artistic side of things, going back to Leslie Martinson, she was uh, she was in the lobby of the New Works Festival that I was there for, and I introduced myself to her because I heard her speaking um, to different cast members in the green room. Uh, we were doing a musical called Red Clay which was a musical about the moments leading up to um, Rosa Parks staying seated on the bus. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she was speaking to different cast members and she had mentioned that she was going to be doing, uh, directing a show called Superior Donuts by Tracy Letts, which um, that production ended up having uh, Howard Swain, Lance Gardner, Julia Brothers, Michael Asbury, just an amazing local cast. Mm-hmm. And I, I ran into her and I said, hey, I, I heard that you were doing this show and I love Tracy Letts. Um, I haven't read that play before, but I'm the new sound guy, but I studied playwriting and directing at school. And, you know, if you need anyone who could help you out or assist you in any way, I'd love to do that. And um, Leslie being the kind person that she is, she she said, you know, just give me your information and we'll see what can happen. And, and I ended up being able to be her assistant director on that show, which started a a beautiful partnership with her and a beautiful partnership with TheaterWorks. And I've been able to sort of stick around and learn from there. Wow, that's fantastic. Cool. I wanted to ask, what what started you, why did you get involved in playwriting? Mm. 
Well, I uh, the, the the sad admission I have to make is the only reason I ended up in theater in the first place was uh, my junior year in high school. I just had a crush on a girl who was <laughs> acting in the school plays. And she like passed me a flyer and she said, hey, you should audition for this play. And I was like, I, I should audition for this play. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a great way to get girls. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then I ended up I ended up um, joining the theater class. And then the next year, the drama teacher that year, he told everyone that the seniors in the class were going to write and direct a one act play for the lower classmen, the freshmen and, and sophomores. And initially, you know, when I was doing theater and I was, you know, I only acted in high school. That was the only time I ever acted. And it, at that point, I only viewed it as, you know, for fun, for a hobby, because I had a crush on a girl. But then when I got this class assignment to write a play, you know, in hindsight, it was like this angsty teen play that you would you would imagine any, you know, 17-year-old would write. But um, at the time, I realized the strength of storytelling. I, I started to get the beginnings of the feeling of what what it means to feel representation and to get your heart and soul out on the page and and what happened was the thing that I wrote a lot of the students said that they really related to it and so I saw how powerful it was and then I went to college and I thought I was only going to do journalism and then the theater bug kept coming back so I ended up double majoring in theater and I was working on stuff from there but but yeah that's how it all started girl <laughs> no, actually, actually, I, I ended up dating that girl for a while, and we went to college together. She, she, oh, it's the same girl. Um, we're not dating anymore, but but those first three stories was was the same person. <laughs> nice. So you went you went to UC Irvine, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you? So was uh, did you? Was it playwriting then that you studied, or was it something else? There wasn't an official playwriting um, emphasis. So there was only one playwriting class that I did take, but there was a directing, there was a directing emphasis that I did take there. And what I ended up doing was I was uh, directing shows that I wrote was what I was doing mostly. I see. You know, we had, uh, I think, two episodes ago, we interviewed Mallory Samara, another Philippine-American artist, and she uh, also has a, it's a mix between her being involved in theater and also in journalism. And you have a bit of a journalism background as well. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about the correlation between, because when I think about playwriting, I think about research, you know, what am I going to write about? Mm. Who am I going to write about? What's the background behind it? And all of that stuff. So how do you combine the two if you do? Um, you know, it's interesting. The, the way I ended up in storytelling was sort of the combination where I thought that for me, at the time, I thought journalism was sort of a, a feasible career. It seemed like a lot, like a, like a logical way to to have a, a career using words. And I, I thought that I was either going to tell stories about community members and sort of uplift stories that way, or I was going to write about sports. One of the two. Yeah. Um, but then when I discovered theater, I realized that there was another power to creatively telling stories of people's communities in, in, a, in a fictional way that was also going to be just as powerful, just as impactful, but I found it a little bit more fun. So, so for me, there's a lot of reading that goes into it. You know, I, I, a few years ago at Theater First, I did, um, a, I wrote a solo show about Larry Itliong, who was um, sort of uh, leader A2 of the Delano Grape Strike alongside yeah. Cesar Chavez. Yeah. And, and doing the research there and watching the documentaries and just sort of taking the notes in that was, was a lot of fun and, and really 
impactful for me to learn about him, learn more about him. And then what ended up happening was as I was watching videos of him, I realized I'm like, oh, I know this guy. This guy is a bunch of drunk Filipino uncles in a garage playing cards and, you know, just right. doing whatever. <laughs> so then I was able to tap into that knowledge that I had on the personality end of things. And then when I wrote the play, it was just a lot of fun. It was, we were able to make something that, that was really cool. So I think that for me, it's the, it's the trying to be as truthful as possible in the storytelling, trying to represent stories and people as much as possible, but also having a good time and being entertaining. Wow, now that, that's very cool. I did have a couple of questions, but I didn't want to ignore Norman. Did you have any questions, Norman? No, no, no. I'm, I'm loving the way this is flowing. Yeah. No, uh, because I noticed, so you wrote a play, Writing Fragments, Home. Mm-hmm. And it was a finalist for the Bay Area Playwrights Conference, and it was a semi-finalist for the O'Neill Playwrights Conference. I'm interested, what, what is the play oh. about? Uh, that play, you know, I, that was one of the early plays that I wrote post-college, and it was a uh, semi-autobiographical play about a playwright who um, is, is, is essentially overcoming writer's block and trying, to, and um, he gets, he, he rage quits his job at a bookstore, and he ends up having to move back home with his mom, and it's a coming-of-age story about how he, he learns more about his parents' history and he, ha- and, he, and he actually listens about that and listens about why and how they immigrated from the Philippines to America. And he realized that that was sort of the key to unlocking the types of stories he wanted to tell. Um, and sort of the, the, fun, the fun theatrical bit to it is what ends up happening is as we're watching the play, you see him writing in his journal and then these two other actors appear magically and they're the, they're the characters that he's writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that doesn't seem that crazy. So, the, you know, the audience is watching and you just sort of see actively what he's writing. And then his mom comes in to the house from work. And then the whole bit is she sees these people. Huh. That she sees these actors and she's like, who are these people? Did you offer them a drink? Like, oh, wow. you, want a, you want a glass so she of water see, or something? She sees the characters that, that the artist is creating or, you know. Yeah, and she starts yeah. to give them notes and stuff like that. And and then she starts to see that, you know, the playwright is pretending to write a version of himself. And she's like, that guy doesn't look like you. He's too handsome. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no, it's very cool. I was thinking as you were talking about this, we also interviewed Conrad Panganaban. Oh, I um, love him. Yeah, Conrad's fantastic, and also Jeannie, Jeannie Baroga. Oh, and I've also hi, I just talked to her yesterday, actually. How's, oh, how's, hi, Jeannie, Jeannie. how's Jeannie doing? Jeannie's good, and talk. I'd mentioned about trying to bring her back in for the yay, so we can we can try and figure out a time for that. That'd be great. Third time will be the charm for her. Well, but we're I'll... getting ready to. She and I are getting ready to do a thing with cats. Um, they do a podcast, and they're going to interview us about that intersection between the black and Filipino. Mm-hmm. I, Jeannie thinks that I'm like some expert on this. And I'm like, I worked on Buffalo that, you know, that was, <laughs> and I learned a lot about that history, which mm-hmm. was great, but um, it was in the process more than anything else. Like when you mentioned, you know, the Delano's, I was like, I, I didn't know the guy's name. I just knew that Filipinos were a huge part of that. And that's, that's been my education in the Bay area is, you keep thinking these little brown Asians. Who are they? And you find <laughs> out that they've been here, you know, on the West Coast the whole time. Mm-hmm. They've been very involved, you know, from sea, you know, from sea shipping times to now. 
and they've been involved in so many of the things that have been happening and people are just so unaware. And I'm like, I love that you find a way to tell the story that is very contemporary, will resonate with an audience, but give them that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I will say just having worked with uh, at Bendelstiff and also just, um, I don't know, throughout my life, especially being here in the Bay Area, the Philippine American community has been so, so warm to me as a black person, I've never felt strange or weird or that I had to sort of, um, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's never superficial and I don't want to stereotype Philippine Americans, but you know, I just feel, I feel a sense of warmth. And especially now in 2020, where you don't know, does anyone really understand how I feel as a black person? I've never really had to worry about that with the individuals that I've worked with within the, um, the Philippine, especially the Philippine theater community. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So that is awesome. You've worked with uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Shan San Jose Repertory Company. You're a member of Ferocious Lotus. I think. Are you still a member of Ferocious Lotus? Yeah, yeah, still. Um, you know, their uh, new artistic director Mei Liang, who's who's doing amazing things, just sort of regrouping during the pandemic and seeing how the company wants to restructure and redefine itself and and redefine the mission, which is going to be really amazing. So, um, I'm really proud to still be a part of the group and 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 see where that keeps going. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I was going to ask, you know, if you, you know, what, you know, I guess the group that, uh, that you connect with, but also had a question because we have a lot of writers who, who listen to the yay, uh, Lynn Aylward. Uh, we, I've had writers come on from the Playwright Center for San Francisco and from mm-hmm. uh, Play Cafe. And there are, but there are a lot of budding writers who was, I guess, want advice, especially, and I'm one of them because I'm, I'm, I consider myself a budding young writer. How do you find different voices? How do you avoid having each character sound the same? Mm. How do you differentiate? I mean, what, what do you, what's your opinion on that? Uh, you know, I, I just have to keep reminding myself because I think that in, in most first drafts, almost every character ends up sounding like a version of myself. <laughs> you know, um, I think that um, I think that for, you know, it, it's for me, I've found it helpful if there's certain I remind myself that there are certain things that I as a human being or any of the friends that I have, they have some sort of. I don't know if it's vocal tick is not really the right word, but there's like favorite phrases, favorite words. And if you sort of lean into what those things are for each character, the way you would, if, if the way an actor would be like this hat that I'm wearing really defines me or this pair of glasses, I'm going to lean into these glasses or I'm going to lean into the way my character walks and see how that sort of affects every other part of the character. I think that, that those sort of things are also helpful for a writer to keep in mind in terms of how a character a character manifests itself now yeah that, that's very cool and i think listening to other people and really getting out and i find for myself the more people especially diverse people that i listen to i can pick up on characters and i think mm-hmm. you know what you're saying is exactly right you know what are the ticks and all of that sort of stuff what is your writing process i mean how do you um do you do like a um, um an outline first uh or is it more spontaneous i mean how do mm-hmm. you you know, what is your writing process? Uh, you know, more often than not, the the process usually goes with, I, I come up with an idea, like a question, something that sort of piques my interest or a situation that piques my interest. And I sort of ruminate in my mind about it before I decide that that's a play. And more often than not, the two things that come to mind first are the beginning of the play and the end of the play. And figuring out how I get from point A to point B is sort of the journey. 
Um, the thing that I try to remind myself in the way that I actually became a little bit more productive as a writer is I, I, I had to remind myself to stop editing myself during the first draft. Like you'll edit yourself eventually. <coughs> um, you're, I, I'm not famous. So no one's, no one's going to be putting my first draft on a big stage. So I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so just, so for me, it's like, okay, if I know how I want to, want want to get to the end or if i know roughly where this wants to go i just need to get there and then i'll go, get to a group of friends and we'll read the play and then we'll fix it after the fact and make yeah. sure you have good friends that won't judge that first draft because it's always bad i wish yeah. more people would do that it's definitely something that i i love whenever i'm teaching playwriting classes to push just get the ideas on the page. Just yeah. get it on the page. Mm-hmm. If you get it on the page, you can go back and fix it. But if you don't mm-hmm. have anything on the page, there's nothing to fix. It's a live document. T- Tony Kushner still rewrites Angels in America every time it gets produced at a big theater. Interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Jeannie, and Jeannie had told me that uh, there are times where she begins writing. She doesn't know when it's going to end. She doesn't know what the ending is going to be. Right. But she's just, she's just going to write it and just see where it goes from there. And, um, and, you know, there are some folks who are like, well, I don't know how it's going to end, so I have to think about it and all that sort of stuff. And you can really delay yourself. Um, yeah, you get stuck. Right, which is, which is a big problem. So, no, that's, that's a very good point. How many readings do you usually go through, Jeffrey? I mean, do you have like one state reading or two or three before it goes to production? I mean, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not – Rajiv Joseph or, or any of these folks who have people lined up to do their work. So, so it could be, it could be years, you know, and, you know, I would say maybe I'll do three, three to five readings of a piece before I move on to the next one. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that my play got a production and I will still share that piece with other theaters, but, you know, for the first three to five readings, I'm actively the one who's pushing the development, pushing the readings, inviting people over to do it. And then after the fact, I'll share it with the theater. And if a theater is interested in doing a reading or doing a workshop or doing a production, then I'll put that hat back on and I'll jump into it and, and, yeah. and put myself back in that world. I had a question for you, Norman. I mean, you work with a lot of uh, budding young playwrights um, you know, <laughs> through your work, whether it be kids or whatever. And I think I may have asked you this before, actor, but yeah. I guess, you know, we're, since we're doing the video thing, a lot of people are rediscovering the yay. But what mistakes, what are the common mistakes? I mean, as, actor, as an actor, if I look at a play and I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, what is the objective? You know, what is the objective of my character? What do oh. I want? And a lot of your budding young playwrights, I think mistake is made is that they're one dimensional or they don't really have an objective or something that something that they absolutely want. I, I feel lucky. I because I do get to like I'm, I've got playground and I'll definitely shout it out at the end. Um, uh, the best of playground is going on right now and we're going to be putting up shows uh, two weeks. No, next weekend. We tech next week and then we're up next weekend. And I'm directing some pieces. So I've gotten to work with, and the writer I'm working with for this piece is a younger writer. It's one of his first pieces. He's only been writing for maybe a year or so. Um, I love, so I was going to say I feel fortunate because I get to work with folks who are at that level where they're ready to have a director or ready to have actors mess with it. Uh, And that's, so that's not really the first draft stage. It is sometimes, but 
usually the writer's gotten a chance to really start to think some things through. That said, I, I find it's as varied as everybody. You know, you get somebody who's just got some genius idea that they're subtly working out in a play, and, you know, you have to dig to kind of figure out what's going on. And then you get, and I've had this more than once, these plays where it's obvious, oh gosh, the white girlfriend is going to bring the black boyfriend home to meet the family. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we going with this? But I've been asked to direct it. And I'm like, okay, if you would put this in front of me and ask me, is this worth doing? I'd have tossed it. But I didn't get that option. I'm in as the director. What am I going to do? How can I honor this play? And so that's what I love is I feel like then it's a conversation. I'm going to do my best to interpret the play. I'm going to ask you, the writer, if I'm on track or what I'm missing if I'm missing something so that that can help you better put it on the page or recognize that people like me are going to miss it. And so there have been a number of times plays. There was there was a white girl, oh, last year, year before. Yeah, I think it was two years ago. And she wrote this piece. Now, I didn't know who the writer was. So I wrote the piece, read the piece, and I was like, oh, damn, it's a black family. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> Yeah. And this blonde, Southern California blonde comes in, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, the play was wonderful. It was a little more in the Cosby, Huxtable world mm -hmm. than the real world. A little. But it was, you know, it was, in, it was that style. Her style was solid. The humor was incredible. And the thing I always appreciate about black characters is please make them like me. Don't make them from the ghetto. Don't make them talk like they ain't never done nothing. You know, oh my God. That's my biggest complaint. people that who grew up in the real world and, you know, in, in an urban area, suburban area. I've been to college. What about those people? And she captured all that wonderfully. So the things that were obviously a little more Tyler Perry and there were some moments all came together in a way that worked. I was like, wow, I would have been so judgmental about this if I hadn't just been handed the script and told you're directing this. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's my biggest complaint as a black actor where you get these uh, caricatures and usually it's from someone who really doesn't speak to black people or whatever. And it's all very cliched. All they know is TV. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's one thing, you know, a writer can only reflect what they have inside of them. So the more... No, there's someone new something. I don't know how, but... I think more than anything, the play, you really could have taken that play and made it any ethnicity. And that was amazing writing to me. That you could, because we've all got that, it was the drunk mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And the play kept jumping back and forth in time. So when we first meet her, she is lit. She can barely stand. The next time we meet her is the first time she enters the story where she hasn't had a drink and she says she's not drinking tonight. And you hear that in the first scene. So you're automatically set up with, well, then how does she end up getting so drunk? And then she had to go back and forth as because the play kept jumping. So the actress had to monitor where how drunk the character was at any particular moment. And all that information was there. The playwright had done an amazing job of structuring all that. I'm like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And yeah, and that that's very important. You know, what you the seeds that you place in the beginning of the play has to track. Uh tracking, uh, I think working with Susan Evans, she talks about tracking all the time. Oh yeah. Uh, 
So uh, I had so before I get into a question with Jeffrey, there was an article that I read this week. Um, it's called One Time Woman. I, have to, I forget what the, the site is, but I think it's uh, Pam Greer. Pam Greer had written a uh, an oh. article, um, but she talks about in the opening segment of Eulogy, a second season. I guess this this was a um, a, t- a television show that's off the air. But in any case, uh, uh, the character is an individual who is is teaching a um, a playwriting. She's teaching an acting class, and she's uh, working with actors who are working with really bad scripts. I mean, just horrible scripts. But this is what she tells the uh, the her students. She says, "Okay, so when he says I'm not perfect, what is that? Why does he say that? Because this is shitty writing. That's why. That's the only reason." But look, most of the work you're going to be given as actors is going to be shitting writing. Do you think you're going to walk out of here and get a job doing a Tarantino monologue, like straight out of the gate? No. At best, 90% of the work words you're going to read are going to be stuck, are going to suck, and have no really feel, no real feeling behind it. Anyone can do a scene that's well written. The scene you're going to need, I'm sorry, the skill you're going to need if you want to really work and get steady work, as steady as you can anyways, to make shitty writing mean something to elevate the work. If you can take bad script and make it work, they'll keep hiring you. It's so. funny that she mentions Tarantino monologues, though, because <laughs> apparently he's famous for having actors just sort of find their thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Usually the Tarantino monologues are just straight out of left air, but it gives a sense of realness. Like I think of the Tony Scott movie uh, Crimson Tide, where they're talking about Mobius and the Silver Surfer, where these, oh. these guys in a, in a, you know, in a um, submarine but in any case, getting back to uh, to Jeffrey, um, do you work with actors? I mean, when you're or, or do you just let's say if you're if a play's been picked up and being produced, are you out of the scene or do you work with the production part of it? Um, you mean at, at theater works? Uh, yeah, theater works. I, I guess I'm just asking: Do you have the opportunity to work with the production uh, when your piece is being produced, or basically? Oh, as a say, writer. Oh, yes, okay. exactly, as, as a writer. Yeah, you know, um, what what tends to happen is the through the first or second production of a play, I, I try to stick around if I get to. And you know, I you know, what's funny is as a as a director myself, when I'm not directing my own play, which I I, I tend to not do anymore, um, I I get really um, I try to be overly mindful of of overstepping my bounds as the writer. I think because of the fact that I'm also a director, I, I, I get worried that I don't know when I'm not, when I'm accidentally directing the play for the director. So I'm very, very careful to, to give my notes to the director. And, and if I need to be insistent, I'll be insistent, but I, I will never give a note to an actor straight up unless the director asks me you know um but in terms of the casting process i'll be pretty insistent um on my opinions of things but but yeah no i try to let the director direct and and any thoughts that i have or any rewrites i have i'll 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 be working with the director on that just because you know it, it it's hard on actors to have a lot of people that they have to listen to oh yeah and yeah. and if nothing else, you know, I want to make sure that any production that I'm a part of, be it as a writer, a director, a producer, casting director, or anything, what's most important is that all of the artists, especially the actors, 
feel like they are in a room where they are in the best position to succeed. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, you don't want to step on anyone's toes. I mean, you know, you want to be respectful for the director. Um, Jeannie Baroga, she told me a story where she had submitted a play and it was being produced on the East Coast. And uh, she went to the East Coast and she was mortified. She was just upset with how they treated the play because I mm. guess they had totally distorted what message she was bringing. Does that worry you at all? I mean, are you, do you treat your play as if it were a child? And uh, are, you, are you overly concerned with how <laughs> people treat it? Yes and no. I, I've had, I've had people change the, change drastically the line reading or even the line of the, like the end of a play, that just changed the entire meaning of an entire play, and it's really upsetting. But I try to, you know, like anything in life, I just remind myself there's only so much you can do. You know, I'm, I can't be in the room for every single. You know, if if all goes well in our lives, we get our plays get to be done all the time. And, you know, Shakespeare couldn't be at every rehearsal for every time his shows have been done. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. You, know, you just sort of have to accept that that's going to happen sometimes. But hopefully, if your words have enough depth and your words have enough um, richness to it, the, the power will be apparent and what, what the best version of it is going to be apparent as well. You've been pretty happy with uh, the the shows that have been that your plays have been produced. They've all been treated with the respect that you'd want it to be. Almost, almost all of them. Oh, <laughs> tell, tell, us, tell us what happened. I think you'd be lucky if that were true. <laughs> well, you know, there, there was some. You know, uh, I, I have some plays that are produced by um, groups that have uh, folks that are are pretty new. To, to being in theater. So, you know, the, you know, the expectation level is different, but sometimes they'll make a choice that could be disappointing. Like I mentioned before, you know, I had this play where the whole point of the end of the play was that everybody sort of ended, ended the story in a place of disappointment. Mm -hmm. And, and the director just, I don't know, couldn't, couldn't cope with that. Cause, cause maybe his life has been just only great. And he, he sort of changed the, he changed the last couple of words. Oh goodness. Yeah. And I, I showed up at opening night and I was like, what? And I thought that maybe the actor, you know, forgot the line or something. And I, and you know, I'll forgive that any day. And the director was like, Oh, I hope you didn't mind that I did that. And I was like, Oh, that was you. Was oh like, goodness. See, I always so, wonder about, yeah. I always wonder why can't a director, someone call you and say, Hey, listen, I'm doing, making this change, especially if it's words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and they knew I was showing up. Right. Right. I told them <laughs> they set aside a ticket for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I always wonder about that. Well, well, that's good. That's good. I'm um, trying to think of, um, I had a, I had a, I had a question. Oh, I'm sorry. The business. Um, you know, there are a lot of playwrights who they they're very good artistically writing a play, but they know nothing about you know promoting themselves. Mm. And uh, the business. What can you tell us? Because you know you've won awards. Uh, you've been, you know, you work with a lot of you know great companies. Uh, what do you what what advice do you have as far as promoting yourself? I try to, you know, the, the, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated or not like social media, but I try to just, you know, if you're doing something that you're proud of, share it and let people know, because that, that can only help. And in terms of playwriting, I think that it's, you know, 
playwriting and act, you know, any, any part of our business really, but that I, I can identify with the playwriting side of things. You know, there's a lot of gatekeepers and there's right. a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of writers who unfortunately really believe in their work, but they feel like they have to wait for a gatekeeper to say yes. And I would say, try to invest your time and energy. And if you can, your money into just producing something yourself. And, and, you know, I forget who said this, it might be Bill Murray has this great quote. I think it's Bill Murray. And it's, it's, you know, be, be so great that people have to notice. And, and I think for me, it's like when you're directing a play, when you're acting, when you're writing a piece that you've produced yourself, just keep doing it. And, and eventually, you know, if the work is powerful, if the work is great, I think people will notice. I think people will know that something cool is going on. I mean, I, as a with my casting director hat, I've been at shows in, you know, being performed in a basement with like 30 audience members. And I'll sit there and I'll be like, oh, look at that one actor or that one actress, you know, that, that one person who's on stage is just totally killing it. I need to know who that person is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know? I'm, yeah. Those are great moments. It's like, you know, you're like, wow, who is that individual who is investing so much energy on your piece, even though it may be in just say a black box, you know, theater with only 30 folks or whatever. But yeah. you really appreciate the the actors uh, who take your work, take your words and and give it the meaning. Yeah. And, and I would say as a playwright, you know, you don't know who's going to be in the room. You know what I mean? You don't know. Mm. You, you don't know who's watching. Who's that one person who just happened to stumble upon this this sign that said come watch a play and they walked in you know what i mean i right. think that you know looking at like you know this, this is this is reaching to, to massive scales but you know in the heights in the heights started with lin-manuel miranda writing this at, at emerson college and broadway producers heard that everyone was going wild about this musical at a college and they showed up and then it ended up on broadway <laughs> you know what wow. i mean yeah so so just continue to do work you believe in and find ways to put it up that don't involve gatekeepers. Eventually you'll have to get a gatekeeper's attention. Sure. But not, not right away. Not in the beginning, you know, you could invite people, you know, COVID-19 there's that, but like you could eventually invite people to your garage and do a play. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And if it's, if it's cool, people are going to notice. Those may be the first shows right now with everything shut down. It may be, <laughs> Yeah, you can actually control and keep the numbers down. Yeah, writers be ready. Write those. <laughs> yeah. Now, Norman, I mean, this thing that you're going to be doing, the directing, this is going to be purely video. Yep. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I so my piece has three actors in it, um, and we figured out how to set it up so that they don't need to be in the same space. I I know some people have been asked. Um, I did a thing with shots of, about a month ago where there were two couples that were involved. And so the other person was able to interact in the space. Um, but I don't have that issue at all. And what I know some of the people have been asked, if you have somebody who's there with you who might be able to help on the technical side, you know, like if you want to turn off your camera, you know, because your character exits or something and you're not standing right there. Um but yeah, I don't have any of those issues. We're we're doing the whole thing remote. Um, they've done, you know, it's a big thing. A playground always does. It does its regular season, the Monday night playground at uh, at uh, Berkeley Rep. 
uh, third Monday of the month. And then this is the culmination of that, the best from each of those nights. And then a couple of plays that were taken from the little short, the little 10-minute play taken into a full length. And then a couple of pieces actually get fully produced. Okay. <clears throat> Jeffrey, I was going to ask you, do you online this time? Yeah. Do, do you submit your pieces to certain uh, agencies? Do you submit your pieces to outside of uh, the Bay Area or do you keep it within? Uh, no, I, I submit to any and all opportunities that I see that I think are appropriate. And, you know, sort of going back to the advice piece of it, um, I keep a I keep a spreadsheet on my computer where I could, you know, remember when the deadlines are and which plays I've submitted. So once they accept or reject me, I know what has already happened with the other plays, and I'm not just sending them the same things over and over again. Yeah, try to be organized about it. Yeah, that's very very smart. Um, one last question because it's 11:20, so we're coming to the one hour mark. Uh, where do you see yourself in the future? Do you want to? Do you you know? Are you? Do you want to go to New York, LA? Do you want to write for film? Um, mm. Where do you see I yourself? Wanna... You know, if I had my druthers, I'd be able to stick in the Bay. I'm born and raised here, love it here. Um, Hopefully, you know, if these tech companies all decide to go remote permanently, our rent prices can go down. But, um, you know, I think for me, although I, I have had a great career as a freelance director, freelance writer, I think that, um, for me, the real power is in being a, an arts leader and arts administrator. So my, you know, I, I hope someday I get the chance to be an artistic director of a company. And, you know, talking about gatekeepers, I want to be able to be in the room where I could help make the decisions on which, which voices we get to uplift and which voices we get to put on our stage and which performers we get to do. So, so uh, that, that's the hope in the future. You know, that's probably much further out, but um, fingers crossed on that. So you've never thought about film? Or let's say YouTube channel. Not really. Well, well, I will say, you know, it's funny you should ask, you know, um, when we were talking about my, my uh, birthday project that I had, um, what we did with those, we called those digital stories. And, and we had myself, I was one of the writers and we had a bunch of other writers. And the only um, parameter that we had was these, these pieces have to be written, taking place in the online world. So most of them took place on Zoom calls. So, so we didn't have to worry about stage directions. We didn't have to worry about anything because it was actually being recorded in the format that the, the world was taking place in. And it was a really cool thing. And um, it was really successful and people were really taken by the intimacy of watching storytelling on uh, about a Zoom call on a Zoom call. It was mm-hmm. like just really strangely intimate, although digital and and it was built because of the necessity of shelter in place, but it's something that we found really interesting. And um, so my, so in the immediate future, myself and a handful of these artists that we've been working with, we're going to, we're going to hope to release more of these digital stories every few months and, and, and try to make them a fundraiser for different organizations. I don't know if, the, if this is a video, I could send you a link to the digital story that I wrote and directed to be cool. If yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, please do. You were talking about a project. Is this the project you were talking about that you've been working on or is there another one? Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, the 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 first big one happened. Oops, the first big one happened on May twenty second, on my birthday, and we're going to continue to do these. We're we're getting ready with some new ones written, and hopefully in the next month or so, um, it's called Our Digital Stories, um, which we we just got the website. It's not it's not running yet, but ourdigitalstories.org. We're going to be releasing 
Um, it's going to be like two to three, 10, 10 to 15 minute digital stories, you know, stories that are told either about people on web chat or YouTube, like just like interacting with these digital mediums, like we'll just see where our creativity lands. And we're also going to have like poetry guests, musical guests, ah, DJs, nice. anything. And we're going to just find different um, service organizations and arts organizations to uplift and be like, hey, just check out the work that they're doing. We're going to provide these episodes for free. But if you have any means, here's the link. Please donate to these different organizations if you could support. So that's that's what we're hoping to do about once a month. At the very least, it helps get the word out about all those different places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be fantastic. And if you give us the link, then we can push that out so that people can submit stuff to you. Um, I may want to get into that as well because I have a bunch of one acts and uh, I that would be a nice little medium. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. That. One last question before we get into um, – Well, and I want to well, ask you, Rich, Yeah. What happened with your reading? It was fantastic. It was really, really good. Got very nice reception. And uh, I think I – did I post it? If I hadn't posted it, I will post it. Um, it, it went very well. Um, there was some digital glitches, you know, um, one of the problems with zoom is that the performance, if you want to call it, that is only as good as the bandwidth and right. the bandwidth can change with every, you know, any one person, but, uh, no, it went very well. It's, it's fascinating that even with COVID-19 and everyone sort of cooped up in their homes, uh, zoom and I guess performing, uh, whether it be just a stage reading or whatever it is, it's become sort of a new new medium. I mean, um, Bendelstiff Studios is doing it. Um, Plethos, <clears throat> excuse me, is doing it. Um, so it's 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 fascinating how people are using uh, Zoom. And Zoom is actually it's it's a nice little application that you know records and you can move the screen around right. and all that sort of stuff. So it's so a judicial process. You said there were other pieces as well involved. It was just judicial process. I mean, oh. I, I personally have other pieces. Yeah, there are some other pieces involved, but I only did the reading for judicial process because I wanted to hear oh. it. But Town Hall Theater next year, they will be putting together judicial process plus a bunch of other pieces, oh, which great. are adaptations of Virtual Brecht sure. in one series of one act. So that's something that Susan Evans is doing. So that's I'm excited cool. about that. So we'll, we'll see how that goes in the future. Do they already cool. have all the pieces? Well, Scott Munson is submitting some stuff. I think there's some other writers who are, you know, taking adaptations of Brecht and um, submitting it. So that'll be that'll be cool. For those who don't know, Bertrand Brecht in 1938, he wrote a series of one acts warning uh, people about Adolf Hitler. And in 1938, a lot of people didn't know just how bad Hitler was, uh, just about life in Germany as the uh, democracy is being transformed into fascism. And so um, the idea is that we take these pieces and talk about what's happening in the age of Trump. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what's basically been going on. One quick question for you, Jeffrey, um, as far as, um, cause I'm always thinking about uh, business and I'm sure other writers are thinking about business. Do you, what do you, what do you charge? Or how do you negotiate uh, you being a writer with other groups or organizations? Do you just listen to what they have to offer to you? Or do you, you know, this, I, I think the business part of it is something that a lot of artists need to understand. Mm. I'm, I'm pretty bad at it, 
really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really being honest. honest. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I try to be just really nice, which isn't always great for, for talking about fees. I'm like, well, what, what do you have to offer? But, but, you know, at the very least, what I try to do is I ask, I ask theaters what they pay for other plays that aren't premieres, right? So like if, if they're going to do, say, a production of, I don't know, like we, we're doing a Donald Margulies play before your play and obviously it's not it's not going to be done a lot margulies like world premiere or anything just like dinner with friends something that they've done many many times i'll always start with what, what did the publishing house charge you guys for that show right and then and then i use that as a starting point and i try to be mindful of you know a world premiere there's other funding opportunities so theaters are really interested in world premieres right. but also i try to understand that world premieres from playwrights that aren't wildly successful wildly famous playwrights you know that's a that's a financial risk for the theater. So I try to be mindful. Um, so so I, I although I'm not good at it, I will. The piece of advice I do say is I give, I, I ask theaters what they get charged from publishing houses because that gives you an idea of what they usually will budget for royalties. So you don't go too high or too low from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always worry about young either writers or actors or directors or whatever getting lowballed. Uh, basically, you mm-hmm. know, a company saying, oh, we're so excited about your piece, but, you know, we're a small company. I mean, right. that does happen, but you don't want to be abused. So I think that's important. Yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the rolling world premiere concept that uh, that mm-hmm. model? Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you see, does it seem useful? I think it's I think it's useful in 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 different ways. Like I think it's useful where, a su- like I think that for a lot of people, the 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 fun of saying that they're a part of a world premiere for their theater company plus the funding, I think that's very useful. Right. Um, and I think it's especially useful for the models where the theater companies all go in on bringing the playwright to their rehearsal room so the playwright can continue to revise and develop the play. I think those models are the most useful because otherwise it's really just in, in name only. But, um, but yeah, but, but, you know, whatever you got to do to get more funding, I'm not mad. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I just, I know like central works uses it and it seems like it's a way for them to tap into new material. It seems to, they say you can actually take advantage of, cause I think you've got like a year or something to, to commit to your project yeah. And so if somebody else has already done it in Philadelphia, you can kind of pick up that press and go, this show that has already gotten yeah. these raves. Yeah. It's not hurting anybody. <laughs> yeah, I just, anything that helps writers, because I know once your show has that world premiere, once somebody's put that label on it, it kind of goes on the shelf. Yeah. That second production is the hardest one to get. And yeah. so the, that's, that's, you know, that's a really good point, Norman. The, the rolling world premiere sort of ensures three or four productions for a play. Right. And then it could only just go from there. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I'm, I think about my play, you know, we had the world premiere and uh, now it's collecting a little bit of dust, but you know, I'm still trying to push it and also, you know, push uh, other things that I'm writing, but um, it's always a struggle, but it's good to hear from you. And it's also good to hear from other writers because other writers will say, okay, now I can, you know, I'm not alone in the struggle, right. but also I can, you know, get advice. You know, we heard from Nassim Badi uh, last yeah. week, who is an Iranian, yeah, Iran. She's an Iranian writer. And so everyone is sort of there. One of the cool things about listening to writers, and it's great to have the yay 
and hear, you know, uh, people talk, but you get people's slice of life. You know, you get to the sense that people are, they're like, hey, I've got a story in me or I've got a story that I've seen and I want to produce it. So it's, it's helpful to, I get the sense that's, that's why playwriters are playwriters. You know, like, like one last question I'll ask you, Jeffrey, what, what, what message do you want to get out of all of your plays? When someone sees a Jeffrey Lowe Mm. play, what, what is the overall message? If there is a message, Uh, is it just, um, I don't know if you're a comedic writer or a dramatic writer or, um, like in the case of Lisa Kong, you know, she is more of a surrealist writer. Mm. But um, what, what, when they, when people see a Jeffrey Lowe play, what do they expect to get? You know, whether or not I'm writing dramatic or comedic, it sort of depends on the mood that I'm in or the, <laughs> the piece that we're working on. But I think if I were to find a through line in any of them, I, I, I would hope that I, I'm exploring just really, and this sounds so broad, but I'm just really trying to encapsulate the human experience and the human spirit. You know, even pieces that I write that might be critiquing, um, you know, the way the the world is, the country, the systems or people are, I think at the end of the day, the pieces that I write are going to be about people just trying to do their best, you know? And, and for me, I think that um, I hope that people can laugh or cry and then walk out of the theater feeling like they have a better understanding um, and more empathy towards anybody. But anybody, like, whether or not they were those people on the stage, I hope that, that all the plays that I work on can create a little bit of understanding and interest in what other people might be going through in their lives that aren't necessarily you. Wow. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, shout outs. Um, shout outs. Birthdays. Jeffrey, if there's stuff that you know that you want to promote <clears throat> right now, we're going to talk about birthdays. So you got a couple of minutes to get anything together that you might want to talk about. But um, uh, for me, it's uh, this week coming up. We've got uh, Sean Owens is somebody that I went to college with. And he's one of those. I went to San Francisco State as a transfer student. I wasn't happy about it. It was just where I was, so I went there. I got out and started doing theater, and I'd already been doing theater, so I just sort of blew, you know, goodbye, all you people. I'm loving, here we are decades later, all these folks that have stayed involved and doing their thing and watching them grow and mature and evolve as artists. It's been great. Sean has been, is a great example of it. Um, Melissa Clausen is somebody I just met ooh, a year or so ago through Play Cafe, and she is a fantastic actress who can just morph so easily between characters. I mean, with Play Cafe, we're reading those short scenes. So you, you get handed 10 pages and you are cold trying to come up with these characters. She always brings it. It's amazing. Um, Anthony R. Miller runs, um, oh gosh, what are they called? Awesome Theater at the uh, Piano Fight. He's one of the people who runs it. And, uh, you know, Piano Fight is great because this is a theater that says, hey, we are not trying to be a polite theater. Bring your beer in, bring your food in, cheer during the play, make noise. He loves that. And they've been making it work very successfully at Piano Fight. Uh, Ken Ingram is an actor. I met him as an actor. Um, He, I would say, more of a, I don't know, working class philosopher, um, martial artist. 
Um, I always enjoy seeing his stuff on Facebook because he will get into the deepest conversations with people about what's happening on the street. So that's a nice juxtaposition. And we did one show together. Um, it was called Lotto Mania, and it was with Central Works. Uh, Larry Craighill is somebody that I know from high school, and he lives here in the Bay Area. I think he hasn't done any theater since high school, but he came in as the penultimate blonde surfer boy, long blonde hair, um, gorgeous guy, and he is uh, he just retired from his job like a couple of years ago. Um, doing the regional parks here. So when you go on a trail in the regional parks, you can thank my buddy Larry. All right. Uh, Robin Sonnen uh, runs or used to run the um, Each One Reach One um, organization that takes playwriting into juvenile detention facilities and other places, but largely that. And that organization has um, married with another place called the Success Center um, in San Francisco, which does a lot more outreach to the community. And that's just become, it's sort of become the umbrella organization for Each One Reach One. But this was Robin's baby. She made it come to life. And I wouldn't know the stuff that I know about playwriting if it hadn't been through that experience. So Robin's birthday. A couple more. Jenny Orland, dear friend of mine who we met in high school. I really got the theater bug. She didn't. She's now a doctor. <laughs> she lives here in Berkeley. Her birthday is this week. And um, and somebody who's passed, and I don't want to mess up her name, Vita Garimani. Um, Vita is the mother of uh, Taranj, who runs um, Golden Thread Theater, Golden Thread Productions. And her mom was often involved in the shows and sometimes in them. And so you, <clears throat> it's always fun to see the family connection work on that level, because... Um, Toronto has got this amazing energy and this vision for how you can make Middle Eastern theater relevant here in the Bay Area. It's not hard to do, but it's always a surprise. It's one of the things I love about doing diverse theater. I don't have to give you a history lesson. I just have to know the history that I want to share with you and then bring it to you in a form that communicates to you. And I think Golden Thread does that magnificent, magnificently. So those are my birthday shout outs for the week. All right. Mine uh, today, Sandra Weingart. Uh, her birthday is today. Uh, I work with Sandra. We did, uh, it was one of the uh, last things that I did with um, East Enders Repertory Company. We did 100 Years of Sex Acts. And uh, she did a play called Prostitute and Client. And it was, an act, it was a really interesting, I mean, this is how wonderful Sandra is. But she had to act with her scene partner, but also interact with the audience where the play would break. And they, uh, the actress would, you know, go to the audience and say, so what do you think about the fact that, you know, this man wants to make love with me without a condom? You know, what do you think about that? And it was really, really engaging and very, very aggressive theater. And she was very good with that. And so her birthday is today. I want to honor her. Also today, Mark Dannenberg-Hines, his birthday is also today. I'm not sure if he's acting anymore, but he was a um, he acted in EastEnders, um, I think, around 2004. And we did a play, um, Wonder of the World. And he was a wonderful comedic actor. And so uh, his birthday is today. Oh, is that it? That, was it? Yeah, Hold I on. didn't. I was surprised. It wasn't a big week. Nine months ago in history is probably uh, probably not the big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a sexy else? time. Yeah, uh, um, go ahead and promote your show, Norman, uh, that you're... Uh, so it's a, it's Playground's uh, Best of Playground. 
Um, they there's a playground page on Facebook. It will be done as a Facebook Live event, so you can click in there. Um, if you check my page, I will post it on my page. Uh, when I get a discount code, I will share that with those who ask. I'm not just going to post it up, but if you ask about it, I'll make sure that I let people know. And um, so it's going to be an evening of shorts. Uh, mine is called I'm Back, and it's that moment when Michael Jordan is at home plate. He's at bat making the decision about whether he's going to stick with baseball or go back to basketball. Of course, we know how it ends, but it's a fun. The playwright has found a fun way to explore that moment. Oh, I so, do have... Coming up next week, um, Saturday at 8 o'clock and Sunday at 5 p.m. Okay. So, so we'll uh, promote it, I guess, uh, for those who want a link. Uh, you can contact Norman directly so that uh, he doesn't have to post the link online and then everyone jumps in. I'm also involved in a uh, yet another play reading. I got a, uh, a request a couple of days ago. And I think that'll be in the end of June. So I don't know a lot about it. So I'm not, I can't, you know, I don't even know what organization is involved, but I got the script. I'm reading it. It seems to be very interesting. It deals with race relations and um, it seems to be very timely. So I'll promote that as it goes on, but it'll be at the end of June. Um, That's it. Jeffrey, um, did you enjoy yourself? Had a great time. Had a great time. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, with, with theater being um, different, you know, a couple of shout outs that I wanted to make with, with are for some folks, um, a part of the theater community or not, but doing some different things. Uh, actor Juan Amador on Fridays, um, he's wow. also a DJ and doing this incredible uh, DJ show. Um, both on Instagram Live, but um, the best the best qualities on his Twitch channel, which is Think Beat Radio, and he is just playing just the best tunes from '80s, '90s to today, and just making everyone feel good. And, and the the past couple of um, performances of his on Think Beat Radio on Twitch TV have um, been raising funds towards the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. So please uh, support him there. Um, another rapper, friend, actor, amazing person is David Morales, part of the Bay Area Theater Cipher. Um, he goes by oh, Dav at Active Poet. Cypher, yeah. Yeah. And so if you can go on SoundCloud, Apple Music, any any of those things and support his music, he's been doing some wonderful, wonderful work. And he was a part of my bench project. And then last but not least, uh, fellow Filipino-American uh, theater artist Tasi Alabastro, who's been doing amazing, amazing work throughout the whole Bay Area theater scene, helping everybody learn how to put their things digitally and using things like Twitch and streaming and online broadcast software. Um, he's been doing amazing work. So everyone, please send some love and support to Tasi, especially on his Twitch stream that he's doing uh, four days a week, um, just having a good time. And, and he deserves a lot of support because a lot of folks have been um, the benefactor of his kindness and his skill set. So I want to give a shout out to him as Tassi well. Tassi is so amazing. He's so goofy, but he is so giving and supportive. He's he's wonderful. Absolutely. And yesterday, yesterday he did a live stream with City Lights Theater Company and he raised, I think, five hundred dollars for uh, colors of change, which was Yay. which was awesome. awesome oh, stuff. right on. That's that's fantastic. Well, all right. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much. You are you're still the casting director for Theater Works, is that right? 
Yes. yes. All right. So, you know, uh, any actors who are uh, looking to get into theater works or you want to know um, what new shows uh, may not be this year, but next year, um, <laughs> Jeffrey Lowe is the person that uh, you should uh, contact and we'll have your, you know, your information. Uh, but you've done some, you, you've done some fantastic stuff, Jeffrey. So, you know, I just commend you and, you know, the best of luck in, in your future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, for those who are watching, of course, we'll post this on YouTube. But uh, for audio folks, uh, this is a podcast and you can listen to it on any podcast that you listen to. Your Apple podcast app, that purple app that you have on your phone. Also, for Android users, you can use the SoundCloud app or just go on SoundCloud.com. Really, any app that you listen to your podcast. It can be Spotify. We're on that, too. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. I'm at Reg Space Clay. And I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. How about you, Jeffrey? Do you have a uh, Twitter or um, Instagram account? Yeah, both of them are at They Call Me JLo. They Call Me JLo. <laughs> All right. So uh, hit up Jeffrey Lowe. And that's it. Have a wonderful weekend, guys. And as we always say, Norman, we, we got to find a better sign-off. <laughs> and we are out. <laughs>